Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro. With me is Ricky Allpine. How are you, Ricky? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. So, I want to talk about Kung Flu Quarantine this morning, okay? Okay, yeah. And something that I found quite, quite disturbing, actually. So... We're in this madness in Australia. I don't know what it's like overseas, but people who test positive in this country have to self-isolate. And if you're moving around the state or if you've come from overseas, I don't even know how that works because it seems quite difficult, but then you have to uh, you have to isolate in hotel quarantine at, at some expense, I believe. I think, I think the, the individual has to pay for that, I think. I'm not quite sure, but is that right? Yeah, yeah, you've got to pay. No one's um, paying for you. Yeah, and it can be quite expensive. So, um, so, yeah, so people who test positive for COVID-19 in New South Wales uh, are placed under isolation order, which prohibits them from leaving their homes, right? So, uh, this New South Wales public health order, it includes a fine of $5,000 for anyone who breaches that isolation order. Now, the isolation orders, it's only meant to last for 14 days, but a person cannot leave their home for essential reasons until they receive their discharge papers, okay? Now, here's the problem. The bureaucracy in New South Wales is so slow that some people are having to wait up to 38 days to receive their discharge papers. So, um, what do you think about that? Oh, I think it's crazy. Like, um, the whole system, the whole is... uh poorly designed it's expensive and just this i mean firstly the assumption that you just got thousands of dollars lying around i think says a lot about like the people who've made these these settings do you know mm. what i mean yeah they're just like oh yeah oh just dip in just dip in um to your, to your mad money and to stay at some hotel and you say well i'm not certain that people have that lying around um secondly i mean you they, also they're not thinking it through if you are in meant to be in there for two weeks, then on that last day, you'll literally be counting down the minutes because it's solitary confinement. That's right. Do you know what I mean? Like, and uh, people go, "Oh no, it's comfortable." You know, you got a TV, and you go, "Well, <laughs> uh, you know, compared yeah. to, I suppose, compared to an actual prison, but you haven't actually committed a crime, so I don't know if you sh- it should be compared to prison." Yeah. If we should be comparing the comfort level to a prison. It's like, well, uh, it's a prison for someone who hasn't committed committed a crime. Like you've taken away my, my freedom. I'm not allowed to open the window. Yeah, that's the other thing that that you you're not allowed to open windows. And uh, and the other thing I I don't quite know, uh, and maybe I should do a little bit more research is. When you do home isolation is a, d- a different deal, but hotel quarantine, like how much time do you get between landing in the country and going to ho- hotel quarantine? Like, do you get to go home? Do you get to get, get, like pick up your laptop or some books or some things or maybe some? I don't know if you do some sort of work that involves paperwork. Like maybe you can pick some of that shit up so you got something to do in hotel quarantine, or are you literally just sent there with your clothes and you you just sit there watching free to wear TV for fourteen days because that is a fucking nightmare. Well, it is, yeah, modern nightmare, absolutely, uh, and yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, I read that it, it, that the standard stay is two weeks, and it's longer if, it, particularly if you won't. Uh, it could be up to um, twenty-four days, like you know, depending on like whether well, I don't know whether you're cooperative or something. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> See, this is the other thing. You now you sent me 
quite a disturbing video that you found this this on Twitter. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, someone had posted so, it. Someone who was in hotel quarantine made this video because his neighbor was basically trying to bash down the door and the walls because uh, he, he'd done his 14 days and he was just being held there. I don't know how long his stay was uh, overall, but uh, obviously he wanted to get out quite badly. He's done his 14 days and this guy made a video about it. It's, it's really quite disturbing. Like you hear him yelling, like, you know, let me out. I'm supposed to be out, you know bring me somewhere else, like just yelling at the top of his lungs. And, and, and then I think some sort of security guard or official person is like, get back in your room, like stay in there, don't come out, all this sort of stuff. You obviously know there's a guy going off his head. Listen, why is he going off his head? Is it because he's supposed to be let out and you guys haven't let him out? Can someone call me? Can a doctor call me? Because I find this really disturbing. Hi, there's a guy going off his head. You obviously know that. There's a guy going off his head upstairs. He's punching walls. Yep, can I ask why he's doing that? Is he supposed to be released from police quarantine? Yeah, but... Jeez, okay, bye. Fuck. I think he's my next door neighbour. I don't think he's having a good day. But I heard him say, I'll say it again, that he was supposed to be released. And this is what I get worried about. I'm supposed to be released at 11.59 on Tuesday night. And he's still here. And I reckon I'm scared that after spending 14 days here, 338 hours in one room with no air, and then they tell you you can't leave, I reckon I would go off as well. People can't understand the insanity of hotel police quarantine when you can't get any fucking air in here at all. It's madness. It's absolute madness. And you have, what do you have, seven tests in here? Like he's negative COVID. I feel for this guy. He's surrounded by police. The government should bend over backwards to ensure that people don't spend a minute longer in quarantine than is necessary, you know. And the other thing is these people in hotel quarantine, they receive seven COVID tests in 14 days. So every two days they're being tested. So it's obvious this guy didn't have it, you know, because he's done his 14 days, he's done his seven tests. So what the fuck, man? Just let the guy out, you know. Mm. But at the end of the day, we've... Um, you know, we've let this happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that's the thing that gets me the most is that, like, I hate all of this, but, um, you know, 
it's I, I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to say we haven't done anything. We haven't done enough to 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 fight back about this stuff. You know what mm. I mean? Like, and there must be, there must be an alarming amount of of apathy out there in in Australia, <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, to let all of this happen in all of our states uh, to varying degrees, you know, and it's really it's really troubling, you know, and it's that old thing. Once you give it away, um, it's you hard know, to get back. it's hard to get back. Of course, it is. Like, like think about everything that's been given given all the powers. Look at the look at how pissy um, the Victorian government gets. Like when you know they've got to go and apply. I think I've said this. I think I said this early on in our fucking podcast. Like this idea of like. Having to go and reapply for your for the special powers, COVID powers, and mm. like you get this sense that they're a bit annoyed. They're a bit like, "Oh, come on, yeah, just fucking give it to us." Just like, what's what's the big fucking deal? Like, let us just have these powers till the next end of next year. And you say, "No, no, no, I want you to come back." I mean, you know, I want I want you to come back uh, almost every ten days. You know, I think we should we should mirror the the quarantine system. You should have to come back every ten days and reapply. Mm. For for whatever these powers are, so we can take them or strip them from you, yeah, take yeah. them away from you, so you can't send people, you know what I mean, like to hotels that they have to pay for. Mm. Yeah, it's madness. I um, well, I do have a, I do have a, a gift for you if you've got the time. Yeah, sure. So I know you don't have um access to the Australian. It's behind a paywall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But this is, a, this is a gift for you. Now, it's a little bit long, but I, th- I think we need this. So, you know, I'm going to read this out to you. Then this, this, this is a gift for you. It's called Why No Inquiry into Managing COVID by Peter Credlin. Oh, Peter. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. If the federal government can have royal commissions into aged care, disability care, bushfires, veteran suicides, and youth detention in the Northern Territory, you have to ask why it has not yet foreshadowed a full national inquiry into the biggest crisis in two generations. One that has resulted in more than 1,000 deaths, the biggest expansion of government in peacetime, and unprecedented restrictions on our freedom. Consider all the things millions of our citizens can't do. We can't leave our home without a reason. We can't visit our loved ones. We can't have more than a socially distanced handful of people to weddings and funerals. We can't go to a place of worship. We can't meet outside for, with more than one person, one other person, and then it's masked up. The only shops we can go to are supermarkets or pharmacies. For more than a year, no Australian has been able to leave the country without first getting special permission. And no one has been able to make any plans because they can be upended at a moment's notice because of a virus outbreak. A royal commission with all the powers to compel witnesses and documents would give us the best chance to learn the lessons from this pandemic, all the things we got right and all the things we didn't, to better inform how we tackle the next pandemic. Having seen the impact of the virus, you can't tell me biodefense won't be a security strategy for sound nations and an offensive measure for rogue ones. Given that Australia has been turned into a hermit kingdom, most of us have lived for months under virtual house arrest and the, and the federal government alone has spent 20% of, of gross domestic product paying us not to work and to keep our businesses closed, albeit to stay safe from a pandemic virus. Surely there are obvious questions a serious country would want answered, such as just how deadly was COVID and what were the relative costs of the disease and the measures against it? Was it necessary to lock down so, of, so often and so hard? Were the right experts being listened to? Were proper democratic accountability mechanisms maintained? Did the National Cabinet help or hinder our national unity? Why suspend parliamentary sittings when scrutiny was critical? Did domestic and international borders need to be shut so hard and for so long? 
It's worth remembering that Australia's national pandemic plan never included such advice to close state borders, shut workplaces and cancel mass gatherings in a moderate pandemic. It stated that the rights of the individual should be upheld as much as possible and stressed that measures taken should be proportional to the threat. This plan has been in existence for more than two decades under Labor and Liberal governments and was last updated in August 2019, but it doesn't seem to have guided our response to COVID-19. Why? This is where a proper inquiry would find answers where media questions fail. The complacent conclusion that we have handled the pandemic well because on a, on a per capita basis compared with the US or Britain, up to 50,000 Australians otherwise might have died depends on two assumptions. The first is that it was COVID that was the main cause of death for all those who died after a positive test. The second, that staying alive is far more important than actually living. Given that roughly 90% of COVID deaths here and overseas involved other serious underlying health conditions, how much life really has been saved? Conversely, how much life has been lost due to the restrictions imposed to keep people alive, such as people denied the company of family in their last days and young people deprived of school and university for almost two years? Then there are all the other issues untreated, such as heart disease and cancers because of COVID anxiety and the mental illness and suicide generated by COVID restrictions. These are all the questions that should be pondered as dispassionately as possible and debated as widely as possible if, if we are to be in a better position to handle the next pandemic, about which nothing is certain save that there will be one. The pandemic has separated Australians into two distinct groups, a small minority who've had the time of their lives dealing with a crisis that has empowered them as never before, and the vast majority who have endured restraints on their freedom that no one could would have imagined possible two years just two years ago. The last thing the first group want is to be held to account. The first thing the second group needs is a proper analysis of why their lives were turned upside down. Now it goes on, but I think you get the, you get the picture. What do you, what do you think of Peter? Mm, I love Peter. She's the best. I've got to say, she's my whole pass. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to have her on the show. She's uh, she's on our wish wish list as someone we'd interview. Absolutely, and yeah, um, she's great. Uh, I think that that's a striking piece of journalism. Uh, uh, where, who else is doing this kind of journalism mm. in Australia? Do you know what I mean? And who else was turn, even turning up to those press conferences in and asking questions? No one. No one. I mean, she started turning up to these press conferences. She's she's more of a uh, of a commentator, and and she has a show on on Sky News. So she's not the kind of journalist who like turns up. To press conferences regularly, but she started going to the the, the daily Daniel Andrew uh, press conferences to ask some tough questions because other journalists were asking ridiculous things like "Ooh, will Halloween be cancelled this year?" and shit like that, you know. Whereas she's like, "Why? Why did you entrust hotel quarantine management to uh, to a a useless security company that that actually has kind of ties to you in?" in quite uh, nefarious ways, you know. Um, why did you pay them so much? They did a, a bad job, you know. These are good questions, though. And, yeah. and uh, you know, and, and, and this article is just one of many she's written about, you know, asking, you know, really tough uh, inquiry, you know, is what she's asking for. And, um, and I just feel like uh, this sort of discourse is... is um, forbidden right now mm. do you know what i mean like you're yeah. not allowed to in polite company you're not allowed to say well i think we need a dispassionate accounting of what's going on you know i mean there's been a lot touted they're, they're touting this the new boogie monster is this fifty thousand 
dead Australians, this, this, the, you know, possibly dead Australians that they're now trotting out to sort of scare everyone and say, this, you know, this could be someone you know and, you know, you, you, we all save these lives. And you say, yeah, yeah, that, be that as it may, that, that's great. Um, but now we need to look into, I mean, if this was any job anywhere, um, there would be an inquiry that you do, you do a SWOT analysis, you do, um, you know, a full accounting of, mm. of how it all went. You know what I mean? And yeah. I think, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's, um, and we need to know how many businesses were, were closed, how many, how many people's lives were lost. We need to know how many people killed themselves. We need to know right, yeah. uh, who, you know what I mean? How many relationships well, that, yeah, that's why I've been so frustrated with these daily press conferences, particularly in Victoria. Daniel Andrews seems to love getting up in front of the media and 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 talking. But, no, yeah, no one asks, okay, these deaths you just, just told us about, like, like how old were they? Well, they do give the age, but, you know, what were their underlying health conditions? You know, did they die of COVID or with COVID? Uh, yeah, what's the suicide rate? How many businesses have closed this week? You know, all that sort of stuff, like the, like the other statistics that would paint a, a broader picture of what, what the fuck's actually happening, you know. And dispassionate is the word. We're just, yeah, just, that's right. We, we need to get the emotion out of it. And I yeah. think because I think that that is, is um, what's been used, you know, up until now. I'm, I mean, we, we're seeing it now. We, I'm drifting into the anecdotal, but, you know. Just recently, I mean, I hear you know some of Katie's uh, acquaintances and co- friends and colleagues, and I hear some of the stories from their lives. And let's fr- let's be frank, some of the COVID bedwetting <laughs> I yeah, hear about yeah. is really strange. It is. Yeah. It's very emotional. Do you know what I mean? I know people who are double vaxxed and start telling their partners that they that they need to inform their them if they're working with anyone who's not a double vaxxed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one one of Wenger's friends has said that she she will not have anyone in her house that is not double vaxxed. That's great. I I think we should we should I mean this discrimination's never been so sexy. I think that um <laughs> you should be able to discriminate on whatever grounds you want. Like, you know, you're not allowed in my house um, you know, if you don't like uh Salo. <laughs> You know, you're not allowed in my. If you think, if you, if you, if 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 you don't like David Foster Wallace, you're not, you're not, you're not allowed in my house. What do you think? You know. Yeah. And people go, oh, geez, that's a bit weird. And I go, yeah, I know, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? Now, fuck yeah, off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? This is just fucking madness. But I have found those people uh, that that I talk to who have had. A fairly comfortable time during COVID are less likely or less interested in debating or or or, or yeah having a, a dispassionate uh, rational debate or just discussion or chat about both sides and about the whole landscape you know because they they kind of like it they don't want the party you know? to end they don't want the party to end they love it's a sense of drama they they got they, it's it's a controlled. Uh, uh, environment like they, they're getting their 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 paycheck you know from the government mm-hmm. or whatever uh they, they've got a couple of zooms on you know they're they're in their tracky pants mm-hmm. all yeah. day um but they also have the threat of 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 this sort of really exciting you know uh once in a hundred year event that they get to sort of live through without you know they're not 
they're not in the barrios of like of Brazil or something where where mm. those people are really living it, you know, like yeah, yeah, and like all their relatives are dying of it like every day. But this person gets to go. Oh, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm really, and they get to feel that they're that they're a battler. They're like, oh yes, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping uh, the country going. It's frustrating for sure. Yeah, but uh, on the bright side, I believe we've got an interview, an interview lined up today. Very exciting interview uh, today with a inspiring young gentleman. Mm, he gives us gives us hope for the future. Yes, actually, maybe maybe our guest could hook us up with Peter Quedlin somehow. Yeah, well, he's got links to Sky News. Now. <laughs> he does. So we've got an in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Great Aussie battler Aidan Brennan came to our attention through a Sky News segment praising the former Year 12 head captain for swimming against the stream to oppose the woke ideology infesting his high school. Since then, Aidan's gone on to pen an impressive Spectator article titled Generation Z is Fighting Back Against the Left Establishment. We're thrilled to have him on The New Flesh to chat about his story. Welcome, Aidan. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Aidan, I told my wife, uh, your story, uh, and you know, obviously, I tell her a lot of terrible horror stories about things that are going on out there. And I told her your story, and she said that makes me feel so good. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an uplifting uh, bit of news for once. And we, you know, we said as uh, older people are generally uh, generally do, we said the kids are all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, a fair few people reached out to me uh, over social media and, uh, with a similar message to that. So, and some of the comments I saw um, so had a very similar theme to that. So, I, I really appreciate the sentiment, and I, I like to uh, just say back to people that it is true, and it's certainly not just unique to me. Um, and I, I wrote in my article that uh, there were many other similar uh, school captains elected across Sydney, so that there is definitely reason for hope. Mm, that's great news. Uh, we'll talk about your campaign for school captain in a minute, but perhaps we could start by talking about your former high school. So you attended an all-boys Catholic high school in Sydney. Uh, I understand if you don't want to name names and shame your former school, but perhaps you can paint a picture of what kind of ide- ideology the school was was pushing. So uh, firstly, uh, there was a lot of um, commentary. I, I heard you guys made some commentary uh, on your original segment about me a couple of weeks ago, which was entirely fair around the decision not to name the school. And a lot of people have, have said that. And I didn't want to name the school sort of for two reasons. Uh, the, fir- the first point uh, is sort of the legal point that in case I say anything minutely um, wrong, then that leaves both myself and Sky and possibly you guys liable for a defamation lawsuit. Uh, and the second reason is because I actually I did really enjoy going to the school. Um, it, it, I did I did like the school. Um, I, I had great memories there. So I'm really not interested in, in sort of trying to to um, hurt the school's reputation. And it, it, it's not unique as well. It's certainly not just my old school. It's like so many of them. Um, but the the teaching staff and the general bent of the curriculum and what was being taught was, was incredibly uh, left slanted um, and sort of the not sort of unionist um, worker, workers' rights left, but, but real social justice. I mean, modern left. Yeah, we, we did um, entire segments on, uh, uh, or entire sort of classes on 
Indigenous experience around Invasion Day and things that really it gave you the direct feeling that they were trying to pass guilt from one generation's crimes, which were or alleged crimes against Indigenous people, onto today's youth, um, which, which is so so wrong in, in so many levels. I mean, you wouldn't blame a young Japanese person for Pearl Harbor. Um, so that that was one thing. I, I wrote in my article also an extensive thing about um, drugs, and, and they had a few different people come in over the course of schooling, sort of coming in and basically saying, look, yeah, drugs, they're not that bad, so don't be too afraid of them. Um, and, of course, it was something that you don't want to be talking to 14-year-olds, and most concerningly, a lot of um, parents had no clue about it. So um, that was disturbing and something that a lot of people didn't like. And that particular uh, example you mentioned was brought to the parents' attention by yourself, correct? Yes. Uh, after you became captain, uh, you let them know uh, at some kind of forum what their what the teachers were in fact teaching their kids about drugs. Yes. So um, I, it was, and I, again, I, I can't take uh, full credit. And another reason why I'm cautious around naming school, I had some support from some of the the teachers in doing this as well. So um, it wasn't one thing oh, that the teachers were pushing. They, they do have a diversity of views amongst staff and some of them encouraged me to do that. And, and I did. Um, and yeah, once, once the uh, teachers, oh, sorry, once the parents realized that what they were being taught, there was a, a hell of a lot of outrage and, and suddenly it stopped. And the point I, I make in my article is to constantly talk to your children if you have them, whatever age, about what your uh, children are learning uh, because they, they can be really dangerous messages at times and that's really the best way for you to stop it is to be aware of it and, and then take some action because if you're paying the school fees, you have a fair bit of power. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, were, were there any any specific books or documentaries or, or publications the school was pushing on the students or uh, or, or were some of these message deli- messages delivered uh, sort of mostly through social messaging or, or events, say, for instance, you know, Transgender Week or perhaps displays of solidarity with, say, BLM demonstrations or, or things like that? Were there specific texts that were used at all? Uh, the, well, there's two things on, on that that stand out to me. I remember when I was very young in the school, um, so I had very little influence. I was a, a little 13 or 14-year-old. Um, they did. Uh, uh, we would constantly be talking at um, assemblies about Australia's ills to asylum seekers and, and things like that. I, I, we had a monument in the school um, that was commemorating asylum seekers and, and their oppression, um, which by the way, got removed once I got elected. But um, and it was was just again, it was not. It was framed as aren't we lovely people caring about um, poor asylum seekers? But it was a very thinly veiled criticism of the government's um, policies um, in, to, in relation to quote unquote boat people. The second thing was I remember in year twelve um, for the HSC, we had to we, there was a there was a task where we were encouraged to write about somebody who had inspired us or inspired people or something like that. 
And one of the examples listed was uh, Bruce Pascoe, um, who wrote a Dark Emu, which I'm sure some of your listeners are aware of. Andrew Bolt's done some great job uh, exposing that for basically being a complete fraud. Mm. Um, it, it was sort of incredible. It's since been exposed further, but even at that stage, it was, I think, very much discredited, but was still being pushed on uh, kids despite massive factual inaccuracies, and that's in an educational institution. Uh, and again, that, that, that's again really worrying. And I think that's pushed not just by the school, but by NESA and the who are the New South Wales Education Standards Authority, who set the curriculum. So it, it really is just deeper than my school. Yeah, for sure, it's definitely something that's happening that's creeping in. It, it, I know it's a New South Wales problem, but I think it's it's broadly an Australia wide problem as well. Um, Apart from yourself, were there many other students that sort of spoke up um, openly about some of these things? Uh, yes. So um, one of the things I unfortunately really wanted to mention in Sky but ran out of time was the person who came second to me in my captain was a run was a guy called uh, Ben O'Sullivan uh, who ended up being my vice captain. And he was very similar in bent to me, probably a little bit less overtly political. Um, but he was not swallowing some of the ideology that was being pushed on us. So I, I, that was one of the reasons they sort of had to accept me was the only other possible choice was also uh, a conservative. Um, well, I don't want to label him, so but has similar views to myself. He may not identify as a conservative. Um, so um, it was even if not everyone spoke up, uh, well, some people definitely did spoke up, but the, yeah, they, they made their voices clear at the ballot boxes. Some people do. Um, and just also on the the second point or the first point you made, it is definitely an Australia-wide problem. But I was, it was really encouraged uh, a couple of weeks ago, the education minister, Alan Tudge, uh, knocked back an even more woke curriculum proposed to him. Uh, and that, that's really encouraging news. I, I didn't get as much media attention in this COVID world as it should have, but that, that was a really positive step. I'd love that you formed a sort of a team of rivals cabinet, uh, the two of you sort of sharing, uh, uh, you know, a similar platform. I like that. Um, I, I, look, well, before we drill down into, into some of these these issues, perhaps we could, um, like, what, a couple of curly questions. First one, what is a charitable reading of, you know, yes, this school, but, you know, schools that are doing this kind of thing what what is a charitable reading of their position on these issues and the the the, the purveyors of this this uh, way of thinking and this this uh, methodology? What 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 do you think? So so I think all the people that push these agendas do it because they do genuinely believe in the agenda. Um, it, it's very easy to sort of paint your political opponents as as inherently evil, but they're not. They they are painting. What, or they are trying to convince the younger generations of their way of thinking about the world. When you think of it in that way, it, it, it is less incendiary. But then you have to remember that it, it's really not fair for young people to only be given one side of the story. Yes. Well, it's just what I'm trying to get at is because I'm so confused as to why you wouldn't provide, why you wouldn't want to provide a rational or balanced view of of matters. Do you know what I mean? Now, I, obviously, we on our show we talk a little bit about about this kind of thing. I feel like sometimes, you know, if you've got 
a bit of cash or if you, or if you feel, look, and we've got good conditions in Australia. Most our, our person-to-person wealth is pretty good and, you know, generally people are doing okay. And, you know, it sounds like your school was, you know, to be fair, doing okay, doing okay. And, you know, if you want to teach you there, you're, you're, you know, it's better than working at some other places. I feel like I, I wonder if this is a kind of woke washing, you know, I wonder if this is a kind of, you know, your only option uh, in, you know, in these times to sort of, Keep, you know, to make yourself feel a little better when you go home to, uh, you know, relatively good conditions or, or um, you know, uh, is to sort of push, is to, to go all in as some companies have done, you know, on this on this ideology. What do you think? I mean, is this a long bow to draw? No, I, I think it's accurate. Um, I think there is a bit of perhaps internalised guilt about being comfortable in life, um, being white, those sorts of things. I, I think that is a, a fair assumption. And it was quite extraordinary um, how I remember one time, and this answers an earlier question that's just come to me about the text. I remember one time we watched uh, in English and we analysed as, as an assessment a Stan Grant speech, and it was part of a debate, but we clipped the, the speech he made about whether Australia was a racist country. And he, he, he argued quite eloquently that it was. And I remember the English teacher at the time specifically said, who are we as white people to argue with his lived experience? So I then Googled that debate and Rita Panahi, a fantastic commentator I'm sure you're all aware of, was actually the negative to that uh, proposal. And she also spoke terrifically. Um, but we were literally only given the Stan Grant side of things and then told, well, who are we to argue with that? So I, I think... So that's probably a good example, probably the best example, actually, to your listeners of what gets what sort of goes on. But also, I think the, that statement, "Who are we to argue?" Um, does also show your your theory about well, we feel so guilty that this is the conditions we live in. Well, I also uh, sorry, Ricky, I'm on a roll here. Uh, no, no, I, go for it. I. I hear I heard a buzzword in there in in the teacher's question. Now I'm always on the lookout for these things. I think the problem with some of this stuff is education on the the bizarre lexicon that you need to be across, the language you need to know to to understand what's actually being done to you. And now the teacher used the buzzword, said, you know, I think you said, did you say lived experience? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's a red flag to me. When I hear that, I, I immediately sit up in my chair. Now I wonder how many of I now I had to do a lot of reading um, over over a year or two to sort of get across all of these things. And I I I worry just just because time is a factor, and you guys are a bit younger, and and you know you've got a lot to do and a lot of friends to make and lives to live and the rest of it. How can you expect it to be? across all of this language? Like th- those teachers could uh, almost say anything from of you know including all this postmodern nonsense and that's what i i worry i mean how how alert to this stuff were your were your classmates that that's a really good point in terms of teachers are in it and if i can try and phrase it almost in, in the way i think about things teachers are in a position of trust and authority inherently and as you say they can almost say what they want and because of that position of trust and authority it's taken by impressionable young people as fact. And I was in that class and even at a very young age, I was inherently sort of contrarian and conservative and, and loved to debate. So my, my classmates were able to hear an alternative um, and I think that was a massive fact. And it's just nothing to do with me, but just hearing an alternative 
allows them to then think about it in their own minds and come to their own conclusion, when often that's not presented at all. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's both, the, as you say, the teachers can manipulate sort of the language to not brainwash but convince in inverted commas, but also it's the um, single message that they are presenting day in, day out that without any alternative, and again, to the parents who are listening, provide that alternative to your kids um, if you can at the dinner table um, because it's, it's really important to um, break the uh, sort of monopoly that teachers have over what your children think. Mm. Well, yeah, terms like lived experience, I think, uh, are really slippery terms because they're kind of seductive in a way. Like most young people, they're, they're, they're out to be good people and, and charitable people and they, they want the world to be a good place to live and they want, you know, they want people to uh, have nice lives and whatever. And, and, and this idea of lived experience, um, it does elicit a lot of compassion and it's easy to get sucked into that. But at the end of the day, lived experience, all that is, is just an anecdote, you know. So if someone like Stan Grant, you know, I'm not quite sure of his situation and his upbringing or whatever, but if he's experienced racism, that's that's what he's experienced, but that may not be the experience of, of everyone else. That's know? exactly think, right. Because I think at the moment we, we very much live in, in, in an anecdotal world where really if, if you really want to get down to the core of, of issues is you've got to look at statistics. And we see that in the US with um, a lot of the hysteria around cop killings and shootings of of African American men, where as soon as, as as soon as a black man is shot, it gets a lot of media attention, and it seems as though it's happening everywhere. But when you actually look at the statistics of of how many people are getting shot and killed every year, and and compare that to the amount of white people or the amount of Hispanic people, um, you actually see that that uh, it, it paints a totally different picture. And I think that's, yeah, it's important to know what these terms are all about. And it, it's like you were saying, John, um, it takes a lot of time to really unpick these these terms and this terminology and, and to understand what the fuck it all means. Like, I know we've talked about this on the podcast a number of times, like the difference between equity and equality, which is also a tricky one because, you know, everyone wants equality and equity sounds like equality, but they're actually not the same thing at all. So I guess it's a it's a difficult task for young people to, to get across um, all of that sort of terminology, but it sounds as though you've uh, you've made a running start, I think, I wanted to turn focus a little bit to to your campaign uh, for your election to school captain, uh, and I believe you ran a campaign uh, opposing the leftist ideologies that were being presented to students. But um, what specifically were your campaign talking points? Like, what got you over the line and got you voted in? So um, there was actually some things very pertinent to the school um, in that we about six weeks. In a, in a stroke of good luck uh, for me and, and not for everyone else, that we had uh, an environment, the previous team, sort of uh, including some boys from my group, put in, uh, they replaced plastic from the school canteen uh, with paper uh, for uh, holding the items. I remember that they used to sell butter chicken that would come in this plastic tray then it came in this paper box. And so somehow you ended up getting less food for, and it would cost you more because that biodegradable stuff that they put in costs money. 
Tony Abbott makes a brilliant point about climate change. He says people really care about climate change until you ask them to sort of give up something or do something about it out of your own pocket. And that was basically what happened. And I said, hang on a minute. We're, we've put in a policy that makes us pay more money under the deluded idea that we're going to somehow single-handedly save the planet. And that was a message that was like, oh, someone said it. Um, uh, and then there was uh, some... Other things around uh, the anthem, which I, I mentioned in my article, the acknowledgement of country, um, in terms of we'd gotten rid of the anthem from schools and we'd gotten and we'd put, so we'd start with the acknowledgement of country, then we'd go to a prayer, then we'd just get into the assembly. I said, no, no, the order should be God at a Catholic school. And I should also caveat that with, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I do believe God should come first to the Catholic school. List point of being Catholic, then country, which is the anthem, then you can have an acknowledgement of country if you want. And I'm still almost pondering this in my mind. Was that a message that really resonated because people my age really agreed with it? Or was it just something that they sort of, they knew it annoyed the teachers and they just sort of wanted to fight back in whatever way they could? I don't I don't have the definitive answer to that. I, I suspect it's probably a mix of a little bit of both. So those were two sort of contemporary political uh, issue, or one is a contemporary political issue, and one I think is a microcosm of perhaps our climate policies in action. And then there was also a few, a few sort of local school issues, that, uh, like yeah, you know, how much time we'd get out at lunch and all that sort of thing, uh, which obviously was also a factor. Uh, uh, all politics is local, um, so those were sort of things I, I would constantly mention. Um, and my famous my my slogan was not a doormat, um, because I, I basically alleged that. The, previous few school captains had been doormats to the, the sort of teaching staff and that we were going to sort of have a, a leadership team that sort of fought back. Um, and that's what uh, I was sort of elected to and, and I, I elected to do and it's something that I hope I did. Mm, great stuff. Was I, I believe there was a little bit of pushback from the teachers at, at your school for running for school captain. Can you explain uh, how that was expressed? Uh, well, I mean, firstly, a, a little bit of uh, pushback is perhaps um, the understatement of the year. Um, there was quite a lot. Um, so we had about 15 people run for captain and we all made a speech and I spoke about a lot of the things I just mentioned. And I, I remember everyone had notes and I, I didn't have notes. I sort of just spoke whatever came into my head because that's um, how I... And I, I was in a slightly different mood to the one I am tonight, and I was rather fired up. And uh, I really sort of got everyone agitated. And we had a vote immediately after that. I was told by a high member of the of the teaching staff. Um, and again, you know, I come back to my decision not to name the school. There were very many people in senior positions who were wonderful, and they're still there. Um, and he actually came to me and said, Aiden, uh, there's 150 boys, and you want 122 votes." Um, so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to be elected then. That, that seems to be a majority. Um, and then they, they announced and said, oh, we had an inconclusive result, so we're going to have a, another vote. And um, then they called out our year group to a, a meeting, and some of the teachers said, boys, it's really important you vote for what actually matters and not just vote for someone who's popular and not just vote for somebody who's um, contrarian and, and so very much, you know, they didn't mention me my name, but it was very clear, guys, we really think you should not vote for Aiden. Um, and um, I remember I went around school and I said, you told them once, tell them again. And so we had another vote and 
once again, I won, as I was briefed by people in the staff. And so what they did was they went, okay, well, this isn't working. So they cut out, I think, eight of the candidates, and we had a final five um, of boys. And, again, they put it to another vote. Um, and, again, I told them, keep doing what you're doing. Eventually they're going to have to accept me. And, again, I won. And, again, Ben came second, uh, my vice captain, who similarly aligned. And so we're like, oh, well, these two just keep bloody winning. So they had a meeting with us and they said, okay, well, had a meeting with me and then Ben separately and said, okay, but you've won. Congratulations. We'll give you the position. So um, they did eventually give, and I always do say they didn't have to. They could have totally called it off or just totally parachuted someone in there. They don't have to be democracy school. They did eventually let me take over, but the three votes um, were at, you know, beyond unnecessary based on what teachers were telling me, not just my own ego going, wow, I'm so popular, but teachers high up in the school were leaking to me the number of votes I'd won, and it was more than an overall majority. And this is the part of the story that is is outrageous. It, it is really galling. And, um, you know, you've been um, humble and, and, and mentioned, you know, some of the smaller issues that, as you say, the local issues that, that were important to, to people in the school and whatever. But three votes uh, under these circumstances and to be so, um, you know, transparently mm, undemocratic, uh, I'm just concerned. I think the reason it gets us all so fired up is is perhaps the optics are terrible. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, it's it's clear to say this is a private school, uh, presumably. And um, No, Catholic systemic it was. Right. Okay. Well, either way, I'm sure... Uh, there's a lot of high, high, like high achievers there, who are going to go out into into society and do a lot of great things. And um, I'm just, uh, what what message do you think those three, um, those three <laughs> elections, the three elections? What do you think? What message do you think that sent to uh, the school populace? Um, what I really objected to at the time, and still do, uh, was. Uh, during the sort of voting process, it went on for like weeks. I remember it was really sort of stressful. Um, it just never ended. And there was a real message of, you know, uh, I remember one time people said, uh, this was after I won, and they said, you know, vote again, don't disgrace the captaincy uh, and things like that. And it was, it was this real message of, and I, I think um, you sort of go back to sort of Hillary's deplorable comment or uh, it was like, you know, don't, yeah, you guys are being silly. Stop, yeah, do what you're told. Stop being undesirable voting for this person with a different opinion or these people with a different opinion. Ironically, that's the worst thing you want to do to a bunch of young men, right? Tell them not to do something. That's what they want to do. Um, but it, it really was, I mean, personally and I think generally quite um, unpleasant. Well, I certainly I'm not going to put words in your mouth, and you 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 speak for yourself. But for, but for mine, if everything you know, if some of the things are as as you say they are, and um, you know, I think the people who said those th- those things, those position, who were in positions of power, I think what they did was disgraceful. Uh, you know, as um, you know, because if you can't see uh the macro in the micro, if you can't see your own actions at the end of the day. If those people are sitting home right now going, oh, yeah, yeah, I did the right thing. I, I really tried to. But then again, you know, some of the most uh, villainous actions are committed by people who believe they're doing, as you said before, like the right thing. 
they think they're doing the absolute right thing. They're just trying to get the right result, right? Well, yeah, they, they, they're doing what they, they thought was good and that they thought I would be uh, um, a terrible captain and, and, and do all the things that they didn't want from a, from a, the school's leader. Now, um, our school jumped a bunch of places in the HSC rankings last year and, and things like that. So I, I, I sort of point to and we, we really stayed. Last year was a hell of a challenge, as you can imagine, with COVID up there, even worse this year, but last year was bad enough. And um, we really, I, I don't want to claim a hell of a lot of credit, but I, I think I played a role in sort of keeping everyone on, on focused and upbeat and concentrated on online learning. So those are all the things you want from your school captain. I mean, to get the political stuff, that, that's what you want. Um, and I think I, I did a good job. And I think the results sort of stand for themselves. But I, I think in their mind, they, they were convinced that I wouldn't do that. And again, if, if they genuinely believe that, then I guess that was the logical thing to do was to fight back as hard as possible. But I, I think some of them failed to failed to understand that somebody who may have a different political opinion to you um, and may push for different values to you, you know, is, that doesn't make them inherently sort of dangerous or incompetent. It just means they have a different opinion. As school captain, uh, were you able to make some changes and, and what sort of changes did you try and implement? Um, yeah, so, so if I, I can just very readily go back on your previous one, I'm sure there are many schools that just do completely rig their captain's elections and, and do not allow any or they wouldn't have been allowed a candidate like me to even campaign for a loan winner. Um, so again, this is a, a, I come back to why I'm not, I don't want people to think because there have been, I think, a few people who've sort of Googled my school and been asking my um asking around to get my school and making sure they don't send their kids there and things like that. that that's silly because there are schools that are a hell of a lot worse who I'm sure just completely outright rig their captain's elections. Um, so I, I just very briefly, and what that says about democracy is even worse, of course, eventually, eventually the democratic process won out in the end. So as captain, um, our school was transitioning to uh, a co-ed school. It's originally a boys' school, uh, and it's in the process of transitioning to a, a co-ed school. And I, the biggest thing I felt was that there was the messaging around respect was wrong um, in terms of, of course, when there were girls there, they needed to, young men needed to be treated, hey, treat the girls with respect, right? And that, that's really important. And I want to put that on the message. But what was basically being taught was, you know, you guys are men and men intimidate women, so you guys need to not do that. And it was completely victim um, not victimizing um attacking the you know, young men as a, as a whole um in a way i didn't like so one of the things i wanted to do was um encourage or ch- change the messaging around that and make it essentially don't be a dickhead policy which is you know what being a nice person is and you know what being a turd is um and if you're acting like a, a turd to some of the girls when they arrive you're just an ass and you need to not do that. Not forget the whole gender politics stuff, right? Just don't be an ass. Don't be an ass to a guy and don't be an ass to a girl. And I, I, I that was a massive thing. And I remember speaking to some of the younger year groups about that. And I, I really tried to push that message. And I, I'd like to think I had some level of success rather than the com- firstly offensive and secondly, completely counterproductive message of, um, you know, you are destined to be sort of sexist, try and, I remember there was one about you know trying to train train to train your um, inherent sex, sexism out of you and things like that. That's just rubbish. Just don't be a dick. Um, and, and that was one big thing I did. Um, 
I, I pushed the, on the paper boxes thing. I never got um, the plastic brought back in and prices back down like I promised, but I did manage to get the camp, the canteen completely renovated um, and, or not renovated, but reformed in that uh, some of the people who were working there uh, got suspiciously retired once I sort of put some real pressure on them and a bunch of new people came in and they basically, they didn't, um, well, they didn't directly put prices down. They introduced sort of a cheaper menu, um, which I sort of, that was just slightly after I left the role as well. So I, I don't fully get to claim credit for it, but um, I like to think that was a bit of a victory. Um, we brought back the anthem for a year. I'm told by people who are still at the school that it's since gone, so that that's a shame. And that just shows, you know, you really got to keep pressure up a lot. Um, and we had, you know, prayer, anthem, acknowledging the country, which I think is should be, for all Catholic things, that should be the order and for all government things, it should be anthem, acknowledging the country. And yet just then generally tried to lead um young men through a, a stressful year of their life. And I like to think I had some success. I, I've still got a hell of a lot of friends from the school, so I mustn't have been too bad. Um, and that, that's certainly what I can hope. Were you at all concerned that your actions would affect your academic career or your school life in general? Like your, you know, that by Because a lot of people don't run for things and don't speak up, but you did. Yeah. I wasn't worried at the time. And then I've noticed this year, um, now I'm out of it. HSC ended in November and um, I'm still sort of emotionally drained and I'm still tired and it's probably only now we've been in lockdown. I haven't been doing anything for eight, nine weeks that I'm, I'm fully sort of recovered because I, I was between studying the HSC and doing all this stuff as captain. I was, you know, there's 16, 18, 20-hour days um, with my, and my mind – uh, doesn't really shut off at the best of times. So I was um, constantly in this sort of intense uh, pressure um, and working really hard. And I, I didn't feel it that badly then because I was in the moment, but I've noticed this year, geez, I, I was burned out. Um, uh, so that was definitely a factor. Um, another factor was one of the things you get as a captain of a school is uh, bonus points uh, into uni it, it's not basically the best way to think about it is like five extra ATAR points but it, it's not directly that but that's perhaps the best way to think about it and that's what I um I was constantly worried that if I pushed the school just that little bit harder on certain issues maybe they'd sort of withdraw um their letters that did confirm I was captain so I guess that that's also probably a good example of how schools sort of retain some power over their captains and then I eventually sort of came to the mind, well, you know, I'm not going to live under blackmail. Um, well, they, they weren't blackmailing. I, I do want to be very clear. That was an inherent worry I had. I was never threatened. Um, but uh, so I was constantly sort of worried, you know, will they take this away um, and should I push too hard in case? And then eventually came to a view, you know, I'm just going to have to study really damn hard so I don't need these points. And they, they ended up yeah, using it anyway um, because I, I never annoyed them too much. Um Perhaps, perhaps that's a flaw of mine. But um, so, yeah, I, I was worried and I, I've noticed since just how much it, it, it drained me. And frankly, had it been for an extra month or two, perhaps I you know, really wouldn't have coped. Um, because, wow, my mental capacity is only really sort of recovering to what it was pre-captaincy, pre-HSC now. 
Well, um, yeah, no, that's that's tough. You know, I mean, it's a it's a it's 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 a big time, a big year, a lot of expectation. I mean, I, I mean, I was forgetting this story that you, you know, you had a, a rather important uh, set of exams to get through <laughs> as as well as as doing all of this, and 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 as you said, it must have must have taken quite quite the toll. Yeah, it was it was um, wasn't stressful, but it was oh, it was somewhat stressful, but it was intensely tiring and draining um and there was sort of this constant feeling of, of pressure be in from myself on, on getting good grades you know i sort of felt a constant battle with certain figures at the school and and they were just doing their jobs and i was sort of sort of as we're all doing our jobs pushing for our own agendas um and naturally you know we'd arrive at some compromises um but yeah it was constantly sort of switched on working um, and yeah, it's certainly a, a draining experience, but at the end of the day, um, if there's any sort of younger school audience, you know, do, if you are given the privilege and the possibility to, to run for these positions, or if you're a parent, encourage your children, because there are life lessons you learn from doing them that are beyond invaluable. I may be putting you on the spot here to a certain degree, but I did want to ask you about the impact of COVID that the COVID nineteen pandemic has had on your your education. Uh, as someone yet to reach their twenties, you're statistically pretty unlikely to have any serious complications from uh, any infection of COVID. Um, I feel that the the population being affected most by our draconian lockdowns are our youth. And I'm I'm very surprised we haven't seen protests from teenagers and 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 people in their twenties. Um, what are your thoughts on the lockdown situation in Australia, and 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 how has it affected your education? Yeah, so I entirely agree with your assessment that those most negatively affected are the youth. And I always describe lockdowns as an anti-youth policy, um, in that you are, and by design. I, I don't think that that's even a, a major observation. It's basically designed to stop the movements and the freedoms of younger people to protect um, the more vulnerable from COVID, which is the elderly, or perhaps those with um, underlying conditions. And maybe that's okay. Maybe that's right. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. But by design, it is anti-youth. And maybe, maybe, and I think younger people are frustrated, and I I don't want to speak for younger people, but this is what I think younger people feel based on, my um, canvassing of them, they're frustrated. That, that hasn't that sacrifice hasn't really been acknowledged um, properly. Um, it's never been. You know, young people are giving up these years of their lives, these um, these freedoms, so to protect people, to basically protect others. Um, and that that I do think young people would like more acknowledgement of that. But I do also think uh, a lot of younger people are sort of willing to say, okay, look, there is a, a deadly virus. Um, let's play our part to slow or stop its spread um, while everyone gets vaccinated. And younger people have been very keen on getting vaccinated. And, and that's both in the statistics. As soon as younger people are able to get vaccinated, they've taken up very quickly. And um, also from my personal lived experience, I do not know a single younger person who is uh, anti-vax. And what... Will basically happen is younger. I got fully vaccinated today, actually, um, and a bunch of people um, uh, out my age will be vac- fully vaccinated in the next probably two or three weeks. 
Um, and then basically I think what will happen is they'll just basically stop obeying the lockdown. They won't go protest. They'll go, okay, I've done my part. I've gotten vaccinated. I've locked down for four months. Um, if older people um, have by this point not gotten vaccinated and they're still at risk, well, that's their problem. Um, and I think you're sort of seeing that at the beaches and things like that. People are sort of getting to the point, well, okay, I've done my part to, to slow the spread and keep those vulnerable protected and now it's time for me to get back to my life and us to get back to our collective life. Mm, I, I think it's really important that once we reach these uh, vaccination targets that people do start to, if if there still are lockdown measures or restrictions in place that are um, are a bit over the top, I think it is time people start just to break those rules quietly and to go about their business on mass, I think that's really the only way that that we're going to try and get back to some sort of pre-COVID normal. I mean, I, I hate the idea of a of this term, the new normal. I'm I'm terrified of what the new normal is going to be because I don't think it's going to be very good. That's exactly right. There is no new normal. There is normal, and that is that's what you're going to give us back. There's no new normal. That's right, yeah. And do you think the state and federal governments in Australia have balanced the risks to COVID? And and do you think Australia's youth should have had a voice in this regard? So far, I, I'm not too critical of um, the, the, the governments. Um, they've been certainly imperfect, but um, pandemics will be imperfect things. I, like I said, I, w- I would have really liked more acknowledgement and perhaps, yeah, more more consultation with younger people around, you know, that sacrifice that they're making. Um, but um, if indeed, as it looks, uh, Gladys leads us to freedom at 70 and then 80% vaccinated, then I, I think it's hard to really fully criticise um, because I think, you know, the modelling shows that's when it's safe to do so and, and it's very simple. Um, if, if it's safe to do so, um, then you just have to. There's no defence for not letting people live their lives. Um, what I, what I, I'm frustrated with, um, some of the rhetoric that comes out of the government sometimes. And I was really, I was really glad that Gladys said a couple of weeks ago at a, one of her presses, "Yeah, people are going to die of this, and that's unfortunate." But we've never, as a society, just tried to stop all death. It's a really weird obsession obsession that certain governments got and I, so I, I think we probably as a country we sort of lost our collective minds at a time out of fear but ultimately I think if you look at it in totality um, Claire Lehman wrote a really good article in the Australian actually today that basically made the case I'm making which is you know we locked people out we had locked people down we got sort of back to a COVID zero and with the perhaps exception of Victoria we lived a fairly normal life for 15 months while the rest of the world was going through a version of hell. Um, and then the last few months have been really tough just while we got sort of vaccinated and Delta got um, tamed a little bit. And so if we do indeed open up at 70 and 80%, then I, I think overall that's you know, a pass grade, a, a, a good performance. But if we don't, and I'm really alarmed at 70% currently, the roadmap still would have us wearing masks when not out exercising outdoors. <laughs> I won't encourage people not to follow the law, but I may just not. Um, so, so it's imperfect. There are things that, I, but overall, I think yeah, it has to be a fairly 
good grade. Um, but I mean, I guess that, that's just my view. But I, 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 it's so difficult when you're in a lockdown to take the wider view. But I, I think, uh, and it's, yeah, I think if you had asked me perhaps three weeks ago, I might have had a different opinion um, and been far more critical of the state government. But if we do hit those simple 70, 80% targets and we are living freely by November, December, then I think. Um, that's not a bad overall performance. Mm, well, I think you're. I think you're lucky. You're you're in New South Wales because Gladys Berejiklian, your state premier, she is the light at the end of the tunnel. I think. I think her her rhetoric and her trying to push things along. I hope will spur on some of the other state premiers to do the same. I mean, you look in in WA where Mark McGowan is is setting his own vaccination targets of now ninety percent. Which goes against uh, goes against what they're trying to do nationally, and God knows what what Dan Dan Andrews is going to do here in uh, here in Victoria. But uh, yeah, I definitely think Gladys has been the the standout performer in this uh, in this whole pandemic saga. Uh, do you think that if you're if a person is double vaxxed, particularly if they're uh, not in the firing line of this statistically of this particular virus, if you're double vaxxed, that from here on out probably shouldn't have to wear a mask and you probably and and you should we shouldn't be have locking down those people uh, yes I, I do if i was making the law that would be the law uh, I, i'm okay with some basic conditions so maybe have, have a mask on public transport have a mask at the shops that sort of that that seems fair enough to me but you know the idea that i can't go hang out at my mate's place um we're both 18 we're both fully vaxxed i mean come on uh, that that is too far. So I do think at the moment the lockdown it's it's too harsh, um, and it's it's gone on just a little bit too long. Um, ideally, so yeah, yes is the answer. Great. Well, we're coming just a, a couple of last questions I think to put a bow on all of this. Now you you brought this up on 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 the Sky segment, and I'd like to ask you why you think conservatism is the new punk. Yes. Yeah, so I sort of hinted to it a bit earlier when you asked me about my my captain's campaign. Were they really voting for me and my ideas out of loyalty and intellectual attraction to those ideas? Or was it just cool to hear something a bit different and, frankly, a bit radical? Um, and the, the way I phrased it in my article is when you have an orthodoxy established, um, which basically has happened with art and media and um certainly in the education institutions, there is a left-wing woke orthodoxy. There is a, um, you know, that is all you're ever taught. I mean, name me a famous sort of right-wing actor um, or, or... Tim Allen. I don't know who that is. So <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. Uh, Perfect. Um, so so they're, they're certainly not given a mainstream audience. That, that's... So perfect. Young, I, I, maybe I'm unique, but I'm normally more aware of figures like that. So no, 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 no. Um, Look, it, it, you. I was. I'm. I'm. I'm being slightly facetious. He's right wing. He's old school from my day. Uh, but but him. He had his show, long running show, cancelled last year in the in the Great uh, Awakening of 2020. Uh, you know, hugely, just like Roseanne, you know what I mean? Like, so, oh, so. Right. Yeah, Roseanne might be an answer to that question. Yeah. And, yeah, but it, it's, you're 100% right. It's, it's a complete echo chamber. And any, any of these, these people that do, that do put their head above the parapet, uh, have it quickly shot off. Yeah. And when that's, um, 
when that orthodoxy is established, um, there's a natural inclination to just fight back against it um, with whatever counter message. So when you had sort of a much more stale establishment in the 70s, um, you had things like punk rock, which sort of just said whatever was offensive to the establishment. Well, if the left is the new establishment, well, then defying political correctness is the new way to rebel against it. And, you know, a lot of young, young, younger people, particularly, uh, I must say, younger men, will be very attracted to, to sort of fighting back in that way. And um, I, I think that's something we're going to see um, a lot over the next um, few, well, next decade, really. I mean, the next, the next election is the next elect is the first election I'll ever be able to vote, um, and then there will just be sort of waves after that. So I think that's going to start showing in um, both art, media, and in electoral politics. I think you're right. We we talk about it on the show all the time. Like we come from the arts uh, ourselves. We're not politicians, and we're not uh, activists or anything like that. And uh, coming from the arts, it's it's surprising. Uh, well, in the modern parlance, people would would say uh, cucks that <laughs> have taken over. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I think that's a bit harsh. I just think that decidedly, people in our sphere have are uh, so unrock and roll, and and it's really such a shame to go on Twitter and to read like Stephen King's tweets and stuff, and you just go, oh my god, like you know, you read these people who would just I thought with their their, their artwork is so. Yeah, so rock and roll and so rough around the edges in some parts, and then you just hear them talk about politics and their brains are broken, and it's really, really tough to take. Yeah, it, it's not, it's not um, fun, and it's. Uh, I was just watching for, for my sins. I was watching the drum just before I, I sort of came on with you guys, and a, a, friend, a good, wonderful journalist of ours and friend of my family's, Parnell. McGuinness was on it and she was making sort of the points we're sort of making was the left just aren't very fun anymore. Um, you know, it's, you know, you'd walk into a party and they probably do 10 minutes of an acknowledgement of country and, you know, apologize to pronouns. Uh, you forgot. Literally, I'm sorry, at, at the uni I go to, which again, I won't name, I went to the debating club. So I had some success in high school debating and we spent 20 minutes. Everyone had to go around saying their pronouns. It was just like, God. Does that does that win the debate or? Yeah, yeah. If you if you if you if you, if you say anything other than he she or maybe even they because that's too mainstream these days, you uh, you you won automatically. Mm. Well, I had to fill out uh, my COVID uh, vaccination sort of form to to get vaccinated, which I'm I'm doing on Thursday. And one of the questions that they had for me was what was my sexual orientation, and what were my pronouns, and I thought what. What, what what the hell does that have to do with with getting a vaccine? No, you would say that unless you're sexually attracted <laughs> to vaccines, it's, it's probably not going to be a problem. So I did write in that space. None of your business is what I wrote yeah. in for sexual orientation, and I couldn't help myself for the pronouns. I wrote me, me, me. Yeah. So that's oh yeah, no, the, actually. So I don't know if you if you guys were aware of this, but Instagram brought in a, a thing around pronouns. Um, where you could put your pronouns in your bio. Mm. And it became like a prank amongst people my age to put in stupid stuff. So I remember a bunch of my friends had things like butt slash crack <laughs> and things like that. And so they they then had to, it was so common, they had to mandate what pronouns you can use. No, but I love I love the idea of them getting all angry and going, no, do it properly, do it properly. <laughs> Uh, but that, and, and I guess that's sort of showing what I'm, what I'm sort of saying about conservatives. Uh, are those people who are doing that inherently conservative? Probably not. They just sort of want to fight. Just shut up about your pronouns. Let me be. Go be funny. And that's probably what you're going to see. 
But that's the problem with the left. Like, like that is that is funny, you know. But they they don't see it as funny. They just see it as uh, as a hate crime, you know. Yeah. Mm. They're no fun anymore, and you know, younger people will be attracted to sort of where there's fun. And I have actually noticed, and maybe this is just the circles I'm in, because purely anecdotal, a real sort of love of darker jokes, like quite what you'd describe as quite dark humour. Um, amongst younger people, and if I if I was to repeat some of them to perhaps even you guys or, or to my parents or anything like that, it'd be completely taken aback. Like, God, that's a horrible thing to say. The younger people, and it just I think it's part of that sort of rebellious institution. That, yeah, becoming offended has become such a big deal now, and I think a lot of younger people just say, "Well, I'm going to offend you." Mm. Well, maybe just to, to wrap up here, a final question. Let's cast our gaze now to the future. Uh, so. What's next? What's next for Aiden Brennan? Well, I have to, um, I have to sort of get out of lockdown first, um, and and I mean that sort of seriously. And I've sort of noticed that I um, have become into almost like a vegetative state, and I, I missed your guys' original plan for an interview because I had no idea what the bloody day was, um, because I just become like this sort of almost null state um, without work and without. Um, uh, you know, the normal sort of pressures of day-to-day society. Um, look, uh, frankly, I do have political ambitions. Um, I'd like to go into politics in some way, not necessarily as an elected politician, although quite possibly. Um, and that would that would be with the Liberal Party, of which I am a, a member of. But, but at the same time, I'm sort of not willing to just swallow um, party lines. But then again, the Liberal Party is becoming more democratic in its pre-selection processes. By the time I might be a candidate, I might have a shot. Um, but so I've got I've, I've got a lot of things to work out before then in terms of what I want to do before then, because I, I think it's important to have some level of life experience before parachuting into politics. But um, uh, in terms of the longer term, I, I definitely see some politics in my future. That's very exciting. Well, look, I, this a question I always ask everyone. It's just for my own, completely for my own benefit. Uh, now, you've been in lockdown. You've got no excuse. I, I would like to know what you're reading right now. Um, that is concerning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do do um, horse racing form guides count? <laughs> they do. They okay. do. We'll go That's with culture. that. That's best culture. Dean left the best bet. Uh, we'll go with that. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, definitely keep us posted uh, on what you end up doing in the future. We'd love to have you back on as a politician someday. So <laughs> keep hope. us posted and keep doing what you're doing. It's great work. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, that was Aidan Brennan, great Aussie battler. We hope to see him uh, in the near future. Yeah, wonderful stuff. Um, yeah, as I, as I said in the in the interview, uh the kids are all right, so I hope everyone takes that away from our our, uh, our chat with Aiden today. Mm, yeah. Don't despair. Little ray of sunshine. Uh, next week uh, we have. Well, there's a bit of an error we need to correct because uh, on Cyberb this week we announced we, we've got weekend at Bernie's coming up on Tuesday. That's not true. That's happening the week after. So uh, next week I suspect we're doing say anything. 
Uh, that's a that's a first you're hearing about it. <laughs> this, is an, <laughs> this is an AJ request, so um, I'm very much looking forward to it. Great. Well, if you uh, if you like what we do, please consider uh, giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us a lot. And uh, seek us out on social media. We'd love to hear what you think. Uh, share the love. We said what we said. We did indeed. Till next time. Long live the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. This is shit. This is hotel quarantine.